0: Good evening. Welcome to the LSE. Uh, I'm Eric Berghoff. I'm Director of the Institute of Global Affairs here. We are delighted to have you here, and we're delighted uh, on behalf also of the, the New York Times. We are, during one month, uh, doing a, a cooperation based on a photojournalist exhibit, Hard Truths, And you see some of the images here. Um, and we, we run a series of events that are, have been inspired by um, this uh, wonderful uh, exhibit, and we have uh, them in the uh, auditorium in the old building of the LSE. it 's open. you can go there anytime and 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 see these pictures they, and they, they do bring out a, a lot of interesting questions that we are trying to address in this uh, series of events so tonight it 's going to be about uh, peacemaking and the art of, of peacemaking and i My only role here is really to introduce. Mark Muller, and Mark uh, has joined us to start a, an initiative on a, what we call a conflict transformation lab, and it's really the idea is to bring together the vast experience of conflict mitigation, of, of um, uh, building uh, out-of-conflict situations uh, and uh, research uh, experience and apply research on the the ground. Mark is going to say more about this. But Mark, uh, uh, as you probably know, uh, has been the uh, main advisor to Stefan de Mistura in uh, in the Syrian conflict, and um, he has also been uh, very deeply involved in a number of other conflicts. And, of course, he's an alum from LSE. He is also someone who has been working as a QC next door uh, for quite some time and so he brings a lot of different perspectives to these issues and we are delighted to have him as a visiting professor at the Institute of Global Affairs. Mark, the floor is yours.
1: Eric, thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's an absolute pleasure for me to have accepted um, the offer of becoming a visiting professor in practice at the LSE uh, since I, along with Tim, uh, were we were both uh, undergraduates at the LSE back in 1983, so it's wonderful to be back. But even more importantly, it's wonderful to attend this particular uh, event. As uh, Eric says, it falls part of a series of events that celebrate and draw upon themes contained in the New York Times. Hard Truth photojournalist exhibition, which I really urge all of you to go and see in the LSE Atrium. The graphic images contained in the Hard Truth exhibition go behind the daily news cycle to convey a deeper reality about the lives of people from five different uh, countries from across the globe, all of which are experiencing change and confronting change in different ways. Collectively, they illustrate the world in which we currently live and pose searching questions about how the world is to move forward. Some of these issues are, some of these images are, are, are dealing with the very issues that myself, Stephen de and many of my UN colleagues have to confront in many different peace processes. They capture the sheer horror of war, extremism, and civilian displacement, such as those taken by Ivor Prickett, Uh, during the fall of IS in Mosul and Syria. Others are more intimate and personal in nature, such as the stunning portraits of people living in present-day Tehran. But they give you a flavour and they give us a flavour of some of the complex issues that we have to deal with when confronting different cultures from different continents. While others still capture the brutal reality on the life or the life on the streets of Manila under our populist president, or of countries like Cuba and Venezuela on the brink of change. Together, these images touch upon a number of important global issues of contemporary concern, and that's why the Institute of Global Affairs have held a series of events from migration and transition issues to countering global extremism to democracy and disinformation onto the art of peacemaking, which we will discuss today, and the role of global leadership in the era of populism next week. So what better place to discuss all of this than at the LSE? In a minute, I will ask Razia to introduce the rest of the panel and help us open up this important discussion. But first of all, let me just convey uh, the sincere apologies of Stefan de Mysterio for not being able to attend this event in person. He decided at a late stage to brief the United Nations Security Council in person in New York today. As many of you know, we are at a critical moment in the Syria process, and his first duty is to that process. But he has sent a message to all of you from New York, which I will play in a moment. And to that end, we also have with us today in the audience the head of the civil society unit on behalf of. Stefan de Mysteria, uh, Salva Padula, who is also a graduate from the LSE, and hopefully may make a contribution about the present situation when we take questions from the floor. But to be clear, Stefan wanted to attend this talk not simply because of the importance of the topic, but also to help launch the Institute of Global Affairs' uh, new conflict transformation initiative. And if I may, I just spend a little bit of time. Telling you about it. This initiative seeks to open up a new set of conversations between the LSE academic and research community and the peace practitioner community with a view to helping policymakers and peace practitioners, as well as academics, better understand how to prevent, resolve, and transform conflict within the 21st century conflict environment, particularly in relation to countries that are undergoing transition, whether this be through the development of new research and conflict analysis, better process design, or the development of online conflict conflict transformation tools to aid and promote inclusive peacemaking, that there is a need for new approaches towards more inclusive peacemaking and the transformation of conflict, for many observers is self-evident. Two years ago, we saw the publication of two important reports in the UK, which examined the UK's attempt to build sustainable peace in Iraq and Libya. The reports raised important questions about the West's general approach towards stabilisation and the resolution of societal conflict around the globe. They indicated that lessons needed to be learned from attempts to support political transition in Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, uh, and Syria. That hard power by itself cannot transform societies or ameliorate the impact of long-term societal violence or historical injustice. That there is a need to develop full-spectrum approaches towards the resolution and transformation of conflict, which marries hard power with soft power, by drawing upon the increasing dynamic power of the non-state sector, from non-state mediators to international NGOs, civil society, women, youth, onto religious, social, economic and business communities to help stabilize communities and transform conflict over the long term. And also that some of the outdated 20th century forms of elite diplomatic engagement that have characterised stabilised efforts to date should be dispensed with, where officials and international experts from so-called government stabilisation units talk to other state officials and carefully selected representatives in surreal diplomatic green zones without involving the very people and disruptive groups they are supposed to be stabilising, while other men and women are sent from forward military bases to police fights, conflicts they know very little about. Conflicts which are all too often, like Syria, no longer interstate in nature, but involve an array of non-state actors backed by shadowy sponsors who pay little respect to territorial boundaries, the sovereign rights of states, or the law of armed conflict. So these are some of the themes that we will discuss tonight. There are some in official circles who continue to believe that states and multilateral organizations should monopolize rather than share diplomatic power with the non-state sector. But the recent failures to quell terrorism since 9-11 or predict or respond adequately to the events of the Arab Spring, the rise of ISIS, the crisis in Ukraine, or the ongoing migrant crisis, surely raises questions about the international community's ability to spot, resolve, prevent and deal with conflict. For many observers, the post-9-11 world is a world beset by disruption where the distinctions between foreign policy and domestic policy and security policy, hard and soft power, state and non-state actors are disappearing fast. Consequently, the international community has begun to understand that it needs to develop more carefully present design strategies based upon more accurate conflict analysis in which the role of these actors and the sequencing of political transition and reconstruction is properly thought through, including how to deal with unsavoury political warring elements, something which the UK Stabilisation Unit in its report into deal-making and peace-building has recently recognised. So finally, all of this speaks to the need for new research and collaboration that transcends different academic peace practitioner and government silos, and hence the new IGA initiative. The LSE and its academic communities has a lot to offer, and that is why tomorrow Salva Padula will sit down with Eric Begloff, the director of IGA, and Dr. Reem Tukmani of the Civil Society Unit to examine the results of the LSE Attitudinal Survey capturing Syrian views about the workings of the Special Envoy Office concerning the Civil Society Report Room. They will explore how the Special Envoy's inclusive peacemaking processes can be further enhanced. It's why Tim Phillips, another uh, LSE graduate speaker on this platform, will also be meeting with IGA to talk about how new advances in neuroscience might contribute to our understanding of conflict resolution in the 21st century. And it's why I will hold talks later on in the week in New York about how the IGA can help host a conference for the UN Special Envoy to Yemen to stress test new online tools to help promote inclusive peacemaking. Uh, and we also hope to draw upon the experiences of people like Cathy Ashdown and Stefan de Mistura moving forward. So that's all that I want to say here today. It's an important initiative, and if any of you want to become involved in it, please talk to Eric Begloff, the director of IGA, or myself, afterwards. But it just leaves me to play a short message now from Stefan in New York, the most optimistic man in the world with the most impossible job in the world. And after that, I'll ask Razia to help move the discussion on and introduce the other speakers. Thank you for listening to me, and perhaps we can play Stefan.):
2: I really would have liked to be with you, um, but as you know, this type of mission has a lot of surprises, and the Security Council engagement in New York is uh, the crucial. This in particular, so I cannot be there. But I hope through this message at least to show how much I support this initiative. I really welcome this initiative of the LSC, in particular the the Institute of Global Affairs, because um, Mark Muller is right in pushing for much more cross-fertilization, much more interaction between the academic world, the research world, and the actual practice those who are on the ground and who have been heavily involved in what and are being involved in what we try to implement from theory into practice. Now, that is especially true um, because we are having two examples that we've been trying to push in this very long, very difficult, complex mission. This is how to insert from the very beginning in a possible political process, or peace process, civil society. Not as a lip service, but really, as basically part of it, from the very beginning, even when the sides or the parties don't want them involved because they believe they can keep the monopoly of the government or the opposition. And the same, even more so, applies to women. So we are having now uh, two examples, the civil society engagement and the WAB, what we call the Women Advisory Board, which has been a way through which we introduced, in spite of opposition, both sides saying, we are having our own women, quote-unquote. But what do you mean, we are our own women? The women in Syria are 51% of the population. They deserve to have their own voice. And when they cannot be allowed to do so, we introduce them as advisors to the special envoy and his office so we can hear that voice and make it our own. Salvatore Padola, who has been extremely energetic in supporting this type of initiative and actually implementing it on behalf of the OSC he will be able to explain it to him. He's also one of your alumni. So, bottom line on this, I would like to strongly welcome and support the legendary, uh, innovative, creative approach of Mark Muller and um, the initiative that we would like to promote, and we are seeing it already in Yemen being copied, actually, uh, of uh, involving civil society and women. So, where are we on the conflict then? Well, we are, and it's not a rhetoric uh, comment, at a very crucial moment of truth. The actual territorial battles are almost over. It's enough to look at the map. But then uh, there is one major danger, which has been and still is potentially Idlib, large area on the border with Turkey, which has been under control of the opposition now for a long period, where there are three million people, 3.5 actually, and, 10,000 terrorists plus at least 40,000, let's say, moderate fighters or at least non-terrorist fighters. We were that close, that close to actually having there, towards the end of what we believe could be the end of the territorial battles of this conflict, to have the biggest battle and the biggest tragedy, 3.5 million people at the very time when we are hoping to start building a political process. Luckily, it did not happen, and we hope will never happen. It was a combination of various factors which avoided that. One, clearly a lot of diplomatic discussions, we were part of it as well, but particularly between Russia and Turkey. Both of them have no, interest, have no interest in seeing this huge battle and humanitarian catastrophe taking place on the border of Turkey or for Russia towards the end of what they believe could be a packaging of their own involvement in Syria. Second, we go back to the women and the civil society. We all contributed and we all were delighted to see that women in Italy did take the initiative doctors in Italy took the initiative in the hospitals to wave their hands to show their faces and say we are not terrorists we are normal human beings we are just people squeezed between two options on one side the terrorists who are covering themselves behind us and on the other side the government who plans to bomb as has been done in the past in order to make its own way through the territory they want to regain but we are people And that's where, I must say, I was very proud to see how our connection through the Civil Society and the Women Women Advisory Board, to actually help them to think, you have to show yourself. Otherwise, the impression would be that everyone is a terrorist, or at least a silent supporter. And there were candlelights all over in every window of the city of Idlib to show these are not bunkers. These are houses, these are homes, these are rooms, these are civilians. It did have a major impact in what we call the social mobilization of the horror of everyone in even imagining if the battle would have taken place. And it did push and support what then became the MOU between President Putin and President Erdogan, which is actually being, at the moment, and I hope it will continue, being implemented and avoiding the so-called major major battle for Idlib. Let's hope it works because uh, then we are getting closer and closer to what we could call the end of the major battles or the major territorial battles which have been taking place in Syria which have costed at least 500,000 people, mostly civilians, squeezed between the two sides and uh, 5 million refugees, 7 million displaced people and uncounted suffering and so many wounded people, apart from a huge destruction. But then, okay, the war is getting closer to the end, possibly, of what we call territorial battles, but we need to win the peace, we need to build the peace, and that can be done only through what is left of what was an implementing part of a UN resolution, we call it 2254, Constitutional Committee. That is the key, the entry point for actually making sure that the most important aspect of the future of the political process in Syria includes everyone and gives a voice to everyone in order to make sure that That could be stabilizing the future. Lessons learned, I've seen many in my 48 years almost of service for the UN, with the UN, mostly in war zones, 22 including now Syria. The biggest lesson I think I've learned, and we should all remember because it was recently a reminder of that, is that when you want to build a possible Peace process, the key word is inclusion. Inclusion of civil society, society, inclusion of the women, inclusion of those who did not win the war but are part of it and could start it again, inclusion of those who feel that they've been disenfranchised and ignored. Do you want an example? Recent, Mosul, Daesh. There was a moment in Iraq when, in fact, Al-Qaeda had disappeared, even its leader. But then there was a mistake in not including properly those who were at that time a minority, but a very active minority. And then someone else showed up and told them, don't worry, I may not be a very nice guy, but I have the capacity of helping you to be not only included, but actually winning over the exclusion. And that's when Daesh I feel, ISIS, And how much did it take in order to retake and reconquer that territory and liberate those people? In Syria, the majority is Sunni. So you can imagine how important it is that the Constitutional Committee and possible elections, which should be done according to everyone's uh, the UN Security Council resolutions under the UN supervision, should give a chance to everyone to be included. So that's the key word. And then we go back to what you're going to discuss. Civil society, everyone. I wish you a very good meeting, discussions, and future development of this initiative. And please give me a second rain check for this. This time it just coincided I could not be there.
3: Good evening everyone. Um, Thank you very much for coming. My name is Razia Iqbal. I uh, work for the BBC. I'm a news presenter uh, on uh, NewsHour on the World Service and on the World Tonight on Radio 4. It's uh, great to be here. We have an hour to uh, discuss this uh, and that includes your contributions from the floor, so I'm going to ask the people on the panel for uh, a certain level of dynamism Fantastic to have um, Stefan, the presence of Stefan de Mistura here Mark, I want to turn to you first because about four hours ago the news broke that uh, Stefan is going to be uh, stepping down in his role as the UN envoy to Syria at the end of November. He's, he's going to stay and work on the Constitutional Committee for Syria, which he mentioned there at the end. But when you talk about him as being an incredibly optimistic man, he did say in the four years that he's been in the job that he would not step down until there was peace in Syria. In a way, that does give us some indication of how difficult this job is.
1: Uh, Of course, and uh, we've seen before him, whether it was Kofi Annan or Lakdar Brahimi, very experienced diplomats, uh, having to deal with one of the most intractable uh, conflicts in the world, which, as we know, have domestic, regional, and geopolitical dynamics. Um, uh, Stefan will be stepping down after four years and four months. Uh, I don't think any of us would begrudge him doing that. Uh, And secondly, I think that his commitment to the Syrian people remains undiminished. Uh, And although he is stepping down for personal reasons, once again, and it's typical of the man, he's used this moment to, I think, apply maximum pressure to all the warring parties to come together to establish this constitutional uh, committee. Because the conflict analysis suggests that the, uh, so far, temporary arrangement that has managed to keep the peace in Idlib is only sustainable if there is a political process. And that political process has the backing of the Security Council in the context of Resolution 2254, which he said, but which has also been crystallized in the Sochi Congress final statement, which uh, effectively established the possibility of a constitutional committee, also identified 12 fundamental principles that have been negotiated out over three years in intra-Syrian talks, which sets out a vision of a future Syria that can be shared by all, which is consistent with the Geneva communique. The big issue is this. Over the last six or seven months, uh, on the back of the Sochi Declaration, as consistent with 2254, we have been negotiating with the establishment of a constitutional commission. The opposition list is agreed. The government list is agreed. A middle third list, which was agreed under the Sochi Declaration as being finalized by the uh, special envoy and which should consist of civil society independent experts and other elements in Syria, is no longer agreed. And the position of the UN is this, as articulated by Stepan today in the Security Council, that if you are going to have a credible constitutional committee that can actually entrench those 12 principles, then the principle of inclusion has to be respected and that all Syrians have to be involved in that constitutional committee. It is perfectly possible for the government, of course, to form its own constitutional committee, but if it wants the support of the United Nations, if it wants the support of the international community, then that middle third inclusive list is fundamentally uh, essential to any successful peace process. So you can see his bringing forth of his uh, announcement to retire uh, in per- purely uh, purely personal terms but I think once again he he sacrifices a little bit of himself to turn around and say to the world look uh, let's try and solve something within the next 6 weeks before I finally uh, present my final report which is either going to lead to a massive reassession by the Security Council or the beginning of a constitutional committee that for once might give uh, ordinary Syrians some hope of or, or, or a new type of Syria.
3: It, it, do you think it's legitimate criticism when people talk about the sidelining of the United Nations and you know, by definition Stefan's role in the peace process because of the dominant role that has been played by by Russia, Iran, and Turkey in pursuing their own particular objectives?
1: Well, um, that's often said, but one only has to look at what happened at at Sochi in the Sochi final statement to realise that actually the UN played a critical role in the development of that final statement. That final statement effectively endorsed the 12 principles that were negotiated out in the intra-Syrian talks. It turned around and provided for a constitutional committee upon the compositional requirements that had been set forth by the Secretary-General and Stefan de Mastira. And it also returned the uh, establishment of that constitutional committee to the Geneva process. So whilst there was probably an attempt to try and build a different type of political track, in the end, everyone came together and recognised that if you're going to have proper support for a peace uh, process with proper reconstruction, it has to be under the 225... Uh, for process, and I'm afraid Stephen de Mysterio was absolutely central in that enterprise, and in securing, if you like, the possibility of, of international backing for a Syrian peace process.
3: Thank you, Mark. Um, uh, Catherine Ashton, let me turn to you. Um, Catherine Ashton was, of course, the uh, EU, former EU policy, foreign policy chief, and uh, was a lead player in uh, the long road to the Iran nuclear deal and was instrumental in clinching the peace deal between Kosovo and Serbia. We're talking, um, Catherine Ashton, about peacemaking in the 21st century. And the 21st century, in many ways we know even just in the last two years is actually quite a different landscape to the 20th century in the context of the way in which President Trump approaches his view of the world, the way in which multilateralism has a more diminished place, if you like, if we're, if we're to listen to the narrative and the conversation framed by the, the most powerful man in the world. And I, I wonder how you reflect on how much has shifted in terms of what has been possible in the context of your own particular experience? So, just call me Cathy, not my Catherine.
4: <laughs> it's wonderful to see all of you. Thank you very much for giving up your early evening to be with us. And I just wanted to say to Mark that, as I whispered to you, you were really privileged to have a chance to listen to Stefan talking to you. He is one of the most extraordinary people in the world, aided and abetted by this man on my <laughs> left. And, you know, it's such um, an an amazement to me that organisations like the UN that come in for a lot of criticism produce these people who are so special. And that brings me to the question, really, which is there is nothing that I can think of, no issue that the world is confronting that we can tackle alone as a nation-state. It's impossible. Whether it's climate change or it's trade issues or it's... Conflict, because conflicts might begin somewhere, but they don't end there. The consequences, the ripples from those conflicts are felt everywhere. And so you have to collaborate, and you have a choice about how you do that. And the discussion that you've just had, the two of you, is a really good example where you can have what I call the informal groupings. You bring together particular countries or institutions for one purpose. That was the work we did on the Iran negotiations. The P5 plus 1, as the Americans call it, or the E3 plus 3, as we call it. It's still 6 you add it up. The point about it was that it brought a group of nations together with a mandate from the UN Security Council to do a particular job, and only that job. And that is often an important way you can get things to move that are stuck but it never substitutes for the depths and long-term commitment and the values and ideals of the institutional frameworks that we have, of which the UN and I would argue the EU is a part. Those are deep, solid tankers of relationships. They move slowly, but they keep moving. And they stick with the problem for as long as it takes. They don't just run off when the new... Uh, crisis comes along that takes their attention. So it's not about either or. For me, it's both and. You use the tools that you've got and the people you've got to stop, first of all, people dying and being injured and the terrible, awful things that we see happen. And then you move it on and try and bring those together to find solutions. And along the way, we will say the UN's lost, lost influence or the UN's gained influence. We will say that one country's in the lead another's not. Frankly, who cares? Get it done. Get the job done. And what you'll discover is it's because it's a really impressive collaboration. makes a difference
3: it's certainly true that those who are still willing to try and make that iran nuclear deal work are still trying to pursue different ways in which it can be sustained but if you have from above in the case of president trump somebody who is part of that legal binding multilateral deal saying sorry i'm walking away that that does pose profound challenges doesn't it I think it's it's a real
4: challenge in a number of different ways. The agreement was reached. Everybody signed up to it. The nature of the way the American engagement in the agreement was done meant it came down to the president continuing to sign off based on the independent evidence from the International Atomic Energy Authority that Iran was compliant. Nobody thought that if they were compliant that the deal would be ripped up. That didn't mean for a minute that everyone thought all of the issues of Iran were done. Far from it. I always saw this as the beginning of discussions and agreements. There were many other concerns, uh, particularly in the region, about what Iran was doing. But it was a good basis to move forward. So taking that away, I would argue, does not make it easier to begin to move on some of the other issues. It's also the case, back to my earlier point, that if you've collaborated, I worked on the Iran deal for four and a half years, and I didn't begin it, and I left just a few weeks before the final ending. I did the interim agreement and the different legs, if you like, of the final agreement. The point was that people put in a lot of time and energy and work together as a team in very unusual circumstances. There is no other agreement where China, Russia, the US, and Europe collaborate and agree, and 100% agree, on what an outcome should be and put that through the Security Council to kind of seal the deal. If you then have a party that moves away from it, it does send a message about the reliability of the collaboration to the other parties. And as I began, you're going to need to be able to collaborate if you're going to solve the problems. So it not only affects the original agreement, it affects the capacity... To be able to make further agreements, maybe in other parts of the world.
3: Uh, let me turn to the uh, award-winning journalist sitting to my right, uh, Alyssa Johansson Rubin, who is the Paris bureau chief of the New York Times. Um, uh, uh, Alyssa, you have covered uh, Iraq. You've covered uh, you've covered Afghanistan, and although you're based in Paris, you still take a close interest in in the parts of the the, the world that you have covered um, between 2009 and and um, and 2013 I I wonder how you reflect on how much has how much has changed in terms of those the way not just the way in which you cover the story but the way in which you cover the story because this isn't just about nation states anymore the the conflicts that you've had to cover are about non-state actors uh, making it really difficult if not profoundly dangerous for you to actually tell people what the story is
5: well, I think there have been a number of changes. I started out in uh, in 1999 in uh, with Kosovo, and that was a a, a uh, fight or a conflict where, as you remember, there was international intervention, and it and it more or less worked. There was peacekeeping of of a sort, and it wasn't a big war. It was it was contained. And today, while it's not a happy part of the world. Um, that that has more or less held but when you turn to the Middle East and North Africa today that, that's not at all the case so I was sort of asking myself because I was coming here what, what had changed and I, I think one of the biggest things is that rather than having these um, larger external forces or countries um, more or less together uh, they, they aren't anymore so you have a number of places around the world that's it's Yemen, it's still somewhat Iraq, it's obviously Syria, uh, Libya um, and you know to some extent uh, the way that spills over into neighboring territory where you had a civil war a sort of civil war begins then those groups fracture in different ways I mean for instance in Afghanistan right now there's, you know, should you be dealing with the Taliban or should you be dealing with uh, the Taliban and the Islamic State or should you leave them both out they're all actors in the conflict um, as well as the government and, and various warlords so, so you've got a, a very large group that you're now having to deal with and in addition you have much larger countries that have agendas that are not always identical to those of the uh, of the fighting civil strife parties so so your, your difficulty, if you're a reporter, your difficulty is trying to figure out how many of these different points of view you can fit in any one article before people get completely lost and move on to something else. But uh, I think from the, the notion of peacekeeping with these very different agendas, and now often particularly this has been problematic in Syria, without, we're, we don't have peacekeeping forces in these places at all so there is no uh, abatement of of the shooting except when the parties for whatever reason run out of ammunition uh, they decide they're going to take a holiday whatever it is but you don't have the space and and I felt very much that when you don't have the space of of kind of quiet or relative quiet it's never going to be secure if there's not a political deal but when you don't have that space, no one's really invested in, in maintaining, um, in, in trying to fight for peace, because they, they can't really imagine how it would work. And and so you don't really get the civilian population fully with you. And at the end of the day, the civilian population has to be there. And as, as Stefan de Mistura said, it's, it's, it's women, it's women small groups it's bigger groups you need you need the warlords but you need the people they're beating up too and and that's obviously in libya we've seen an enormous problem getting any consensus so i think that is another change that we've seen in in many of the conflicts um that that have gone on sort of post-September 11th. And I guess the one other thing I really want to mention, because it was so clear in Iraq, and we're really seeing the fruits of that failure to some extent today, Um, but also, uh, obviously, I I think it will be the case in Syria without a doubt, um, and, and really throughout, is that when major powers do come in, they have not come in with the means to actually improve infrastructure. In a in a lasting way. I mean, the U.S. was spent years in Afghanistan, years and years in Iraq, at, at enormous, untold, you know, amounts of money, um, and there's still not electricity. I mean, I think the average electricity in Iraq now is there's maybe seven hours a day, so uh, of city power. Otherwise, you're paying for it. So, what is your percentage in not going with? a militia of one or another variety. You, you need to have something that that makes you able to imagine a future rather than just getting through the day. So I think all of these uh, elements have come together in this period and, and we're, not, we're not really responding to either um, the complexity and the cross-national aspect because of all these other actors. You, you see that particularly in a place like Yemen, but but also obviously in Syria, Um, and and the the needs of the civilian population. And somehow those two um, have to both be invested.
3: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Alyssa. Um, Tim Phillips, uh, let's turn to to you now. Um, Mark mentioned uh, Tim's involvement in this initiative that he introduced this evening. Tim is the CEO of an organization called Beyond Conflict. And he has been involved in in, in helping to to catalyze, I think is probably the the right word, both peace and reconciliation processes in um, Northern Ireland, in El Salvador, and and South Africa. And um, I I wonder, Tim, when you hear about the the need to develop that full spectrum of tools as, as Stefan de Mistura is talking about you know, the, the idea that, that soft power is as important as, as, as hard power you know, what your reflections are on what needs to be done in the 21st century when it comes to, to building peace let's, let's focus on Syria and, and, and Yemen
6: Uh, Well, thank you. And I will have to say that was one of the most impressive performances I've seen in a taped um, message (laughs) in the 21st century. Um, It's as if he was here with us. Um, So a couple of things. I was listening to the purpose of what's being launched here tonight, um, some of the presentations here this evening, and the notion of of art and new tools. And as uh, Razia said, I've spent now nearly 25 years working around the world, essentially convening leaders from countries that have struggled through transitions from either dictatorship to democracy or conflict to peace. And I like to say we've been sort of a big support group <coughs> on Wales and that we bring former negotiators, av- adversaries, enemies to sit together and to both model and demonstrate that change is possible. Transformative change is possible. You don't have to live in a country under conflict. We can see in our own personal lives. That change is difficult. But to go through what these countries are struggling with right now on a profound level of trauma, of fear, of resilience, of being a victim, is really difficult change. And what we've found over the years, by bringing in people who have struggled through that, and often on different sides, that it can really model for people that this is emotionally and psychologically possible. Now, Stefan said something which I found really powerful. He said in his 48 years as a diplomat, the one word that really is his takeaway is the need for inclusion. 25 years ago, I was in Guatemala, and a Guatemalan friend of mine who has survived many assassination attempts said to me, he's come to learn that the number one thing that drives conflict in his country, his region, and the world is exclusion. And As he put out, until people feel a sense of recognition, validation, survival, and and safety, they can't fully engage in the world. They can't fully engage in defining their future as a person, individual, as a community. And so in my 23, 24 years of work around the world, because we don't come in with a particular theory of what change looks like, what we do is bring in people who have struggled through it to offer those lessons. And they would say this about exclusion or inclusion or the need for inherent recognition of each person's dignity. But you know, governments, funders, all of us want to know, but what is really at play? What is it you're really trying to address? What is your theory of change? How do you measure this? So about a decade ago, we started working with brain and behavioral scientists because we started learning. There is profound knowledge there and what it is to be human. They tell me, and I pass this on, uh, it's in plenty of books, but it's really important that it's more important to focus on how we think as humans and not what we think. We think unconsciously, we think in mental models of the world, we think in groups, and we think in milliseconds. Our Our brains evolved to be predictive and not reactive. And so when you start incorporating and bringing that into the world of conflict, into the world of negotiation, into the world of social change, you recognize that one of the reasons why conflicts, in my view, and many others seem intractable or peace agreements remain fragile is because we're missing what fundamentally shapes human engagement in the world, our need to feel validated and seen as we see ourselves and our need to feel truly included on our terms. And here's what's interesting about research and science The same part of our brain that experiences physical pain is the same part of our brain that experiences emotional trauma. Another way of looking at it is we experience physical pain in the same region we fear. We experience humiliation and marginalization. In fact, Tylenol can reduce emotional pain the same way it does physical pain. And so what we've been doing is working with scientists at leading universities to say, how do we extract from the silos of research these profound insights about what shapes human behavior and agency in the world and bring that in to new tools of conflict prevention, conflict resolution, and social change? If you look at, as Razia pointed, my own country, friends of mine from Northern Ireland who were involved in the Good Friday Agreement Friends of mine on both sides of the South African transition, friends of mine who were head of the FMLN guerrillas in El Salvador told me a decade ago, 15 years ago, you need to start focusing in your own country. And I was like, yeah, I know we have profound problems, but it's almost like people who have been through it before get it. They have a nose. I know what this looks like, and you don't. You know, you need to focus in your country. And the same dynamics that have evolved and many of these other countries are at play in my country.
3: Tim, thank you very much indeed. I mean, I, I, I wonder, Mark and Kathy, how you set against what Tim has just said the the movement of geopolitics. For example, if we if we look at if we look at Syria and Yemen, you could argue that they are mini world wars that are being played out because we're talking about uh, proxy wars. We're talking about the, the the real fight between Saudi Arabia and Iran for primacy in in the region. And and again. Against what, what you have all been talking about, you know, the need for collaboration and, and, and so on, and trying to find kind of organic, civil um, models that will allow peace to, to, to come about. You have these imposed uh, movements from, from above and I, I, I wonder, Cathy you know, well, what, what do you think about the way in which even the United States now is saying that it's shifting its attitude towards Syria because they're really interested in making sure Iran has absolutely no power there at all well, I was going to say, I think actually we should start with Mark because he's done far more in Syria. Okay. Than well, I have. yeah. Well, you know, because there has been a movement in, in, in the United well, States in, in just very recently. You know, they've talked about how they are absolutely determined to make sure that Iran has no sway in Syria.
1: Well, but, uh, I think just a broader point, just picking up on what Tim said. When you are doing a conflict analysis, which we're all supposed to do when we process design a peace process. And not only do you look at the actors and the spoilers and uh, various other, and the context and uh, uh, the content of the uh, conflict, at the end of the day, you look at precisely what Tim is saying. You know, what is driving this conflict? And almost always it's either people feeling excluded or people feeling some form of fear of the other. So whether you happen to... Talk about it in terms of Saudi Arabia and Iran, you will see an intensely human conflict there. It's not just about geopolitics, it's about perception of the other that goes, that starts from the cultural level right down to the individual level. So when you unpack conflicts and when you begin to try and build uh, and identify common ground, then you actually have to do that type of analysis and begin to understand what are those deep-seated fears. When we were doing the uh, negotiations over the so-called 12 principles, which finally got endorsed by the uh, um, Sochi final statement, we had to talk to all the Syrian sides about their vision of a future Syria. And what was quite remarkable was, notwithstanding the fact that they were all bombing each other and uh, spitting invective at each other, with the exception of perhaps some really extremist jihadist groups, their vision of a future Syria was very similar if you talk about broad principles. Now, that may not be the case in relation to how power is actually exercised in the ground, but actually in terms of their constitutional vision of what they wanted to live under, a non-sectarian, credible state that was responsive to uh, the people and respectful of the rule of law and human rights, was something many of them did share. So I do sit there and think, even in the most extraordinary complex geopolitical Situations you can find common ground. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you can then square the circle with all the different geopolitical and uh, regional interests, but it does mean to say that, in fact, wars always do come to an end, and they invariably come to an end at some stage, whether people are exhausted or not, through the act of talking. And just lastly, I have been an on state mediator for certain organisations like the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, And we have done some um, processes, track one processes, which one would have thought was completely intractable. But I have seen what happens, sometimes over the course of ten years, but nevertheless what happens once you build a back channel and slowly edge people towards talks and they come face to face, and if they do what Tim says, consider the basis of how you frame those talks where they're out of the hot, hot environment of conflict place in a place like Norway, you do begin to see how people begin to change their perceptions once they begin to realize that the fear of the other is somewhat misplaced. One last example, I remember in Aceh, for example, with HD, um, when we were talking about with the gap situation in GAM, the rebel movement absolutely insisted on self-determination and that meant external self-determination. When we unpacked the fears and you began to realize it was all about their fear of the others somehow wielding overall power within a united constitutional arrangement, and you began to provide all sorts of protections for that, they then reduced their demands. So it's tough, it's it's a matter of uh, negotiations, but I do believe all human beings can finally resolve their differences if you have people like Stephen Dempster around.
3: Cathy, share with us then your, your experience of your initial conversations with, with the Iranian Foreign Minister uh, Zarif. I mean, the, you know, the, the lack of trust between Tehran and the international community was absolutely at rock bottom. But I wonder what sorts of conversations you had with him in order to reassure him and how he, he moved much more towards thinking, well, this is efficacious for everyone for, to go in this direction. <laughs>
4: Well, lots of the conversations that you have you never reveal, that's the first thing because what you're trying to do is build a a level of trust in having those conversations so it's it's quite hard to um, talk too much about it I think also by the time we moved from the Ahmadinejad uh, regime which is where I began my first two years of negotiating with Iran to the Rouhani government Rouhani had come into power on the promise of improving the economy and the best way to improve the economy was to get a deal on the nuclear programme. So it was not quite at the rock bottom. And there was already quite a history of discussion and dialogue. Uh, you know, Mark, your point about it can take a very long time. When I talk about negotiation to students, I do my kind of ten things to remember, and one is it always takes a significantly longer time than you think it's going to, and it always will, because you are always in a position where people are are very, very slowly moving. The example I would use more for the kind of things that you're looking for would be Serbia and Kosovo, because bringing the two prime ministers together from these two places in extremely challenging circumstances for both, for one, it was tantamount in the eyes of those people back home who thought he was a great betrayer to some form of recognition that Kosovo actually existed. And for the Kosovars, it was equivalent to saying, I will sit down with these dreadful people who have perpetrated these terrible things against us for so long. Um, So for the two of them who'd never met until they met in my office, it was a very long, slow process. But exactly as you say, Mark, what happens is human beings kind of emerge. And you start to have conversations in safe places, where you can try out ideas and they never leak because they never did where you can begin to acknowledge that you have some shared history because you're on the same bit of land whatever you call it that you are looking for what every human being looks for you want peace you want security you want opportunity you want your kids to be okay you want them to go to school you want them to have jobs and you don't want your people to die or be hurt or injured. It's essentially what it's all about. And however belligerent and difficult people look, and for the wonderful journalists we have, of course, they get the set-piece belligerence often on the television, which I used to watch some of the people I was working with and just, you know, in amazement at how they'd gone from being actually quite nice, calm people that you were having a good conversation with to having to put their point of view across in a way that was very difficult um, to see any possibility that they could become people who would actually reach agreement. But they do. And in the end, as I would say to Serbia and Kosovo and to anyone else and, and the negotiations I did in the Middle East and so on, in the end, this is all there is. In the end, you can kill a lot more people, you can blow up a lot more buildings, you can destroy wonderful pieces of history and culture and you can make families in impossible circumstances. And in the end, you will have to come and talk. So you might as well do it now.
3: Um, Tim, Cathy talks about uh, trying to encourage people to acknowledge that they have shared histories. Th- th- this idea of, of share, shared experiences and, and how that can build uh, build trust uh, you know you have had direct experience of this in, in both in South Africa and in Northern Ireland you know two incredibly long standing intractable um, regions of, of conflict what, what sorts of lessons would you would you say we need to we need to look at in in the context of, of what we're talking about now you know when we talk about peacemaking in those regions in the Middle East what sorts of lessons from those specific experiences right. that you've had can you share?
6: Sure, and, and I was thinking, because I did some work, we did some work in Kosovo as well, um, and I got to know a lot of the Kosovo Albanian leaders and some of the Serb leaders, and what's really interesting, and this is where if you apply research from brain and behavioral science to these real-world challenges, it's the whole notion of threat perception and meta-perception So it turns out, I'll I'll nerd out for a second, I think I may have mentioned, our brains evolved to be predictive and not reactive, right? So we're literally, constantly, our brain is predicting the world around us. Even right now, we're trying to figure out what I want to say, what the person next to you might do. It's tied to survival. And so prediction is based on past experience. And so you can predict it in your own life, but if you're a Kosovo-Albanian leader or you're a Serb leader, in a very difficult environment with a social construction and stereotypes and arguments and everything around you, you're making predictions about the other people, particularly if they've been dehumanized and the enemy for a long time, that is not only based on experience, it's based on how our brains work. And therefore, we have a meta-perception of the other side that shapes how we actually think about them. And when you bring people together in an actual meeting, as Kathy was saying, it actually creates a cognitive shift. It's a, it's a dissonance for them. Because these people aren't like what I thought they were like. They are not as evil as I thought they were. They're actually human. And people actually have to process that. Because they then go back to their communities, who have been riled up sometimes for decades, to fight the big fight, to explain, uh, actually, they're kind of like us. But I can't tell you that right now. And I used to see that all the time in Northern Ireland. When we brought in Sarah Ramaphosa before he became president, this is in 1994 when he was the chief negotiator for the ANC, with Rolf Meyer, who was the clerk's chief negotiator to Belfast, I saw Martin McGinnis and Gerry Adams, at a side meeting I set up, say, we want to do what you do, but we don't know yet how to communicate that to our base. The argument was, you can get so far out in front of your troops that they can't distinguish you from the enemy. And so you enter in, not only as a leader, but as an individual with a set of meta-perceptions, a profile of the others that's based not just on ideology or history, but based on how our brain processes the world around us. And so what we're doing is figuring that out to say, okay, how do you then change that? How do you then change the threat perception before you go into negotiations or before you bring a referendum into Colombia that lost by a small margin? What could you have understood about the perception others have to maybe address that so that you can actually reduce the negative meta-perceptions people bring to all of these situations? Sorry. Sorry, it's a long way of doing it, but I was trying to weave in the art and the science of how we think about New
3: change. It, that, that, it's really interesting, Tim. No, it wasn't long-winded at all. I, I, I wonder, Alyssa, just before we open questions up to the floor, how you reflect on uh, the, the challenges that journalists face when... For example, in, in Syria, what started out as a kind of uprising internally has morphed, as we know, over the seven, seven eight years into something much, much more complicated. And, and when you're trying to cover the impact of these things, the way in which people deal with psychologically the daily um, notion of actually our own people are killing each other, I mean, that, that is hugely problematic and challenging. No idea. I mean, obviously
5: it is, and it's, and it's difficult um, to, to figure out the right level of distance and closeness, um, so you're, you can still make useful uh, observations without being too sucked in. But, but I think that the, the key is really that you have, as a journalist at least, I, I always ask myself, um, you know, where, where is the moral position what am I here to, to try to record? And, and I think in, in a war like Syria, there's, there's no question that, and, and that was true in Iraq and to a considerable extent in Afghanistan, all these places, you're really there um, to try to explain what civilians go through, what people who didn't plan to, to live through a war are now faced with, and how they, and how they parse the picture. Because if you really spend enough time talking to to a lot of civilians, you come to understand why they might end up on the side of of the Taliban, who you might see as, or I might see as as perpetuating the conflict in an area, or why they might end up uh, in a in a militia, and how how all these decisions end up being forced onto a population that really. For the most part is as, as Tim was saying a lot more like us than different most of the most parents want their kids to have somewhat better lives uh, than you know than they had they want them to go to school in Afghanistan of course it depends on whether you 're a girl or a boy uh, to some extent but um, in all these places there's that and so when you rip all that away you 've got people in, in such extremis that they they will, are very readily moved in the direction of the person who is nearest, who seems to be able to keep them safe. And so I think our, our point of entry, if you will, is, uh, is, is very much what that day-to-day life is like, but then throwing it up against all those forces that are at play in a, in a particular area, because that's the way you see how much geopolitics... Um, which is otherwise kind of abstract and difficult to know what you know what does it really mean? How does that play out for, for individuals, for families, um, for widowed uh, um, militias, men's wives? And that's true really across that region.
3: Um, thank you very much, uh, Alyssa. I'm aware that, that everything that you've heard in the, in the last uh, 35, 40 minutes or so is incredibly wide-ranging, but um, it's now your opportunity to, um, to put questions to, to people on the panel. I'm, I'm not sure if there are microphones. Yes, there are. By magic, they appear. Um, so do wait for the microphone. There's a hand that's gone up just there, and then we'll go there.
7: Hi, thank you for uh, thank you for the talk. Um, maybe you could uh, discuss a bit how. Can you hold the microphone just a little close, a bit closer? A little closer, we can hear Yeah. Perfect. Uh, how you are able to involve civil society when leaders so frequently rely on identity politics for their own gain, and somewhat related to that, um, where maybe you see some specific areas where you see pushback from. Leaders as to the involvement of civil society.
3: Do you want to take that one, Mark? Uh,
1: well, I, th- I think there's often, in many different peace processes, there's continual pushback about the involvement of civil society. Um, in Syria, uh, Stefan de Mistura took the decision that right from the get go, right from the very start of the intra Syrian talks, he would create. Uh, institutions for civil society almost before uh, the warring parties could reach an agreement to exclude them. And so actually, literally on day one of the intra-Syrian talks after Resolution 2254, together with the work of uh, Salva Badula who's here, uh, he created the Women's Advisory Board and the Civil Society Support Room. Uh, And sometimes it was difficult because often warring parties and big political players don't want to have to share space in the UN palais with these types of groups. But as Stefan says, if you're going to have a sustainable peace process, then you are, at the end of the day, going to have to have an inclusive peace process. One of the problems with the Libyan process was it excluded civil society, and therefore, when it came to supporting a political transition process, there simply wasn't the buy-in from uh, local communities. So it's not just about paying lip service. It's not just about a normative framework there is empirical evidence that suggests that the more inclusive you are, the more likely your peace process is going to be uh, sustainable. But I do do think it it depends upon leadership, and in the context of the UN, that depends upon the UN special envoy. I've just been um, working with uh, Martin Griffiths, who of course comes from the non-state sector, but is now the UN special envoy in Yemen. And he also has a commitment to ensure that his process will be as inclusive as possible. And he will have to think of new and um, innovative ways to include civil society. Sometimes you can't do it directly, but there are all sorts of different approaches Uh, And also you have to ensure that it's not just simply the elites of civil society. In the case of Syria, for example, the civil society support room have been conducting all sorts of polling, surveying and discussions across a whole range of um, social media tools with people from Gaziantep across the region uh, and in refugee camps. So you have to be as broad as possible. Uh, only then can you really begin to actually identify the commonalities that might actually provide the basis for a sustainable uh, political agreement
3: So, there's a a young woman who had her hand up there and then I think somebody had their hand up at the top the lady with the white top
1: Hi, I've got a somewhat related question to that how do you sort of Make sure that when civil society, uh, well, communicates what they want, it's actually taken into consideration. Like, what's the bargaining position over there? Because, like, uh, like people who cause violence have something to give up, but what do sort of you know civil society sort of has uh, in the process in, in that sense? Kathy, do you want
3: to take that one?
4: It's a, it's a good question, of course, because one of the things that you have to do is make sure that you don't, and the UN doesn't do this, but I speak for myself, that you're not just having meetings with civil society because that's what you think you should do. You really have to work out in any negotiated process what it is you're going to do and how you're going to ensure that what people actually want to happen is factored in. I would argue you have to do it differently in different circumstances because it depends really what the the thing is that you're doing. If you're doing the Iranian nuclear programme, it's a different process that's kind of running underneath to do with the future relationships. Uh, It's not going to engage in how many centrifuges, for example. But if you're doing how um, countries are going to move forward, and a lot of the uh, negotiations or work I did, for example, in Egypt... Um, over the years. It's about how do you make sure that people really do have a say and how do you get the building blocks for that when often in times of chaos there aren't the things that we take for granted in many countries of what I call the underpinnings of a loosely democratic framework where you've got social media and media and you've got an openness and an ability to communicate um, and you've got a capacity to reach people. So you need to build it from scratch. A tiny example, when I went to Tunisia after the uh, removal of Ben Ali, I went to visit all the human rights organisations, and I was the first person not of Tunisian origin who'd ever crossed the threshold of their meeting, because they'd never been allowed to meet anybody. And you're confronted with people doing amazing work. Then you've got to work out, okay, how are we going to build all of this in and design it with them, not at them, which is also important.
3: I don't know if the the woman with the dark hair had changed her mind about asking a question, but if you haven't, perhaps you'd like to get the microphone. And no? you don't. Have you changed your mind? Okay, we'll we'll go up to the top then. All
7: right. Um, thank you very much. I've got a question with regards to inclusion for civil society and minorities. Um, I see that this is probably a bit less controversial here, but. When we talk about inclusion of conflict actors, and we want to make sure that, uh, for example, the Taliban, we don't exclude any crucial actors in the negotiation process. What can we do to balance um, a potential consequence of that? That might be that people think that, well, a gun gives you a place at the negotiation table, and therefore, people are more likely to get involved in the conflict, because they know that if they appear as a conflict actor, they might, might get hurt more easily than otherwise.
3: Tim,
6: do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, Yeah, I have to say that I've always had a problem with the categorization of people as purely civil society. Um, When you talk to refugees and migrants, they don't want to be called a refugee or a migrant. They want to be called by their first name or who they are, right? We get put into these boxes that are really dehumanizing. And not to say that being called a civil society actor is dehumanizing, but you do get sort of put in a box. Mm -hmm. And it sets up, you talk about a meta perception, it sets up to traditional political elites or economic elites, okay, you are not to be taken seriously. And that's what I found in Northern Ireland in the in the nineties and and even still today, frankly. Um, So there are two elements if I heard what you said. One is how do you make sure that civil society is included in a meaningful way? And I think Stefan talked about it, particularly in a very difficult environment by being that venue, that platform that says, I'm going to use my position as a UN special envoy to make sure women and not those picked by the political parties or the governments at play are involved and that they have a voice um, through me. Um, But there is a risk. Um, I mentioned earlier the same friend who said 25 years ago that all conflict is driven by exclusion. He said in the case of Guatemala, when he was advising how to address the conflict, he said, he started off with the theory, based on, I think, evidence, that all conflict is not only driven by exclusion, but what are the options one has if you're a state to address it? He said you can uh, repress, which means, like, if you look at Sri Lanka, what happened to not only the Tamil Tigers, but the Tamil community was brutal, um, and there will be long-term consequences for that. So that often doesn't work. You can reward, which is, I think, the point you are making, which is you could buy off a group to get them into the process and make it inclusive or just to be driven by polit- real politique. but then others see that resorting to violence gets them a seat at the table. Or you can reform. The problem with reform is those who do the excluding in the first place now counteract. And so, you really have to begin to think more strategically and differently of how do you create a different process and how do you redefine what inclusion means, right? And that's a longer conversation. But I do think, you know, these are not easy issues, and I think we have to unpack them to be really thoughtful about them. Um, And the last thing I'll say about Northern Ireland is we played a role, sort of indirectly, of helping launch the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition when I learned from Monica, Monica McWilliams that at a conference we did in Belfast in early 1995, it was hearing from Sarah Romoposa and Rolf Meyer, who had a big audience, said to the women there, you can't rely on these men. We can tell you from our experience, Sarah said, I'm from a liberation movement, you can't rely on us and our own country. You, yourselves, have to get involved. And at that point, Monica said that they got together and said, we have to organize. And they went through a brutal experience in the negotiations um, but eventually they they played a historic role and it's still a challenge today but it's a lesson to learn what they did in the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition mm-hmm.
3: I think there's another hand that went up in the front, up at the top yep and then there's a hand that went up down, right, there,
4: and then there uh, hello, yeah, thanks for the talk um, just really to what extent um, talking about these issues, talking about war or peace, just Diverts attention away from the most important issue, which is poverty and the fact that the rich are still exploiting the poor.
3: Just, can you just repeat the last part of it? To what yes. extent so, does it distract from so, poverty?
4: So, 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 to what extent does talking about um, war or peace or inclusion or any of these other issues just serve to divert attention away from poverty and the fact that the rich are exploiting the poor?
3: The rich are exploiting the poor. Anyone would like to take that one? <laughs>
5: Well, I I think in conflict situations, it's very hard to to extricate all these issues because certainly um, um, people are much further impoverished by by conflict, and so uh, while there there's exploitation going on within certainly within uh, within civil war. Parties as they as they fight, um, the first thing you have to do in order to make any progress is, is to try to make the fighting it stop or become less. And so I I don't really I I don't really think you ever can get away from the income disparities of, for instance, the Americans in Afghanistan, uh, or or uh, you know some of the different groups whether that's Russia or or Turkey in in Syria there there's obviously to some extent those battles are being exploited by large powers for their own purposes and and you have to keep pointing that out if you're a journalist and dealing with it if you're a negotiator. But uh, at the same time, it's not, if, if you just focus on that, you'll never get people in the same room um, begin to talk to each other and, and diffuse the situation so you can actually turn to to issues like the impoverishment of, of those who are, are weaker.
3: Hand just here in the
7: front. Hi,
2: Uh, so what role do you see justice playing in peacemaking in the 21st century, be it reconciliatory or retributive or restorative justice? And second part, uh, for something uh, Iran deal, when you see a key actor like the United States backing out, how do you continue to uh, maintain its relevance, its validity considering the fact that um, trust building was an important part of that entire process.
3: Thank you. Mark, why don't you take the justice one and Cathy, you take the Iran deal.
1: Well, I mean, obviously justice um, is a critical issue. Uh, often is the thing that underpins a lot of the conflict uh, and there are almost always demands for uh, accountability and for justice throughout the whole of any conflict, any peace process. At the end of the day, for people like myself who uh, come from the Mediation Support (laughs) Unit of the uh, Department of Political Affairs, uh, the critical issue is really sequencing. So it's not that justice should not play a role in any peace process. It should be uh, integral to a peace process. But but there is a lot of thinking to be done as to how to approach that issue, uh, when to approach that issue. And in what form that justice takes, whether it happens to be punitive, restorative, whether it has to be formal or informal, whether it's about the recognition of uh, human rights abuses, the moralization of human rights abuses, the ability of ordinary people to simply talk about their own human rights abuses and the pain that they have suffered, all of these things have to be brought uh, into the equation. Uh, I can't give you a... It partly depends upon the conflict, but what I do know is if there is no justice whatsoever, then you are unlikely to have a sustainable peace process. And I also happen to believe that perhaps the West sometimes has an overly formalistic view and understanding of what justice actually means, and that we see, whether it's in the case of Rwanda or other uh, society, ways in which communities have come together not necessarily through uh, a court sitting in The Hague, but through um, initiatives that are done on a much more local level. Uh, And here again, I think also in in relation to uh, when we've spoken to, for example, in Syria, when we've spoken to uh, members of the Women's Advisory Board, where we have had women from, if you like, uh, who are more inclined towards the government, who have lost, for example, their sons... Speaking to other uh, members on the board who have lost their husbands, it's an extraordinarily um, complex moment. And I just have to pay homage to both of those sets of women and their ability to actually come down, sit around the table, and begin to discuss those incredibly difficult issues. It is possible to do it. But, I mean, you really do have to curate, if you like, that whole process before you get a positive result. Um, So I would say justice is integral, but it has to be sequenced properly. And we shouldn't always turn to the most formalistic methods of justice if we really want to have a transformation in society uh, on the ground.
4: There's really not much more I can add about The Iran negotiations in the context of the US except that the other nations remain within the agreement and will seek to try and make it work Um, there's a whole set of things about why there are people who feel very passionately and very strongly that this is not the right deal or it doesn't go far enough Uh, and especially in the US context where um, some of the uh, senior politicians followed the detail to an extent that wasn't true in other countries um, and where they saw elements of the agreement that they didn't either agree with or they didn't think were strong enough and you can argue all day long about that Um, but the reality is that we want to try and hold the deal in play I think as long as possible because it is important but as I said that does not take away from the concerns about Iran more broadly, it's just that the logic for me is if you've got a deal, you use that as a springboard to try and tackle other issues, not start again with an issue that you've worked on for years and actually made some
8: progress.
3: I think we've got time for one final question. gentlemen. just there.
8: Thank you. Um, we were talking about um, the civil society. We had a specific revival of civil society in Syria. We have now the creation of the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria called Rojava. And I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think about these kind of players, these kind of new actors in the region? How should the West position themselves towards these kind of actors in the region?
3: Just, can you just repeat the question? Just hold the microphone much closer yeah, to your mouth. Sure. like that. Sure. Yeah, I just
8: want to know, we have like actors right now in the northern part of Syria called, I mean, we have like a, it's called Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. It's like some sort of separatist movement trying to reestablish like the civil society as well. My question is also maybe emphasizing on the values who are slightly also in, I mean, not that deviant to the Western standards. How should our take be on these kind of actors in the region? How should we work with them? How should we deal with these kind of actors in the region? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I've got
1: very large ears, but I just simply can't hear that. I,
3: I, I think he's asking about—he's asking about a, a, a group of actors in. I think it's in northern Syria you're talking exactly. about, right? So, so uh, we'll get okay. you to talk about it as well. Um, you know, who are uh, engaged in creating and setting up civil society, and 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 how does the West respond to people already doing that on the ground?
8: Well, I, th- I, I think um, the Just West- before
3: you answer, this specific individual that you mentioned... It's not
8: an individual, it's a... Um, well, it's some sort of autonomous movement, so-called Rojava, the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, which has been Iraq- founded around okay. 2016, so... Okay, no worries. Well, if, if it's in relation
1: to Rojava, well, Stefan uh, Stefan de Mysterio himself... Um, Uh, talked about in the uh, UN Security Council today Uh, the territorial, military territorial board of Syria is now simplifying itself and we have the Idlib zone and and, and conflict, potential conflict there and then we have the government zone and then obviously we have Rojava and uh, we are going to have to look at how a political process actually unfolds in the context of that territorial and military Um, set of zones. At the moment, as I understand it, there are a set of talks going on between uh, those that claim to represent Rojava and and the Syrian government. At the moment, we are trying to establish a constitutional committee. It is clear that within the context of the international community, there is no settled uh, approach towards the issue of Rojava or indeed the civil society organizations that have been set up there um, and I know that actually both the Americans and the Russians on some levels have if you like supported the involvement of some of those uh, entities uh, in a political process we also know that Turkey takes a very different <laughs> view that issue has not been settled but I think one thing that is agreed is that all players uh, within the Syrian context have recognized the territorial integrity and sovereignty of the Syrian state, and that is unlikely to be um, uh, rejected by any of the international players. Uh, There will also have to be, and it's one of the principles of the 12 principles, some sort of balanced development in relation to all areas of Syria. So there will need to be some form of, of dialogue, how that actually unfolds, We'll have to see. Maybe it will simply be a Rojava syrian government dialogue. Maybe there will be some uh, further, uh, sort of more internationalized form of dialogue, but that would require an international consensus that's not here at the moment. In the meantime, as you say, civil society organizations will continue to set up. They did so in Syria. They've done so in Yemen. Uh, No doubt they are doing so as well in Syria. Uh, and they will be making their demands heard, notwithstanding the attitudes of the various international players.
3: I said that was going to be the final question, but we're going to have a final question just here in the front.
7: I, I don't mean to steal the floor. I'm not going to. I have a question, and um, I, I just want to maybe... if you Introduce me the chance yourself. To. Maybe compliment with a couple of very Just personal Just tell comments. us, tell
3: I, everybody I, who you I'm are. I'm
7: Salvatore, the, the gentleman that Mark and Staffan referred to in, in his speech. I'm, I set up the Civil Society Support Room and the Women Advisory Board. When Stefan was appointed, I was working with Filippo Grandi in Georgia, and when he was Commissioner of UNRWA, he said to me, we need to do... I've just been appointed Special Envoy for Syria. Everybody talks about civil society, but we never get it right. He said, I want to do something meaningful, I want to do something serious, so you're coming to work with me again. And I said this uh, as a personal story because Staffan de Mistura, I was a student here 23 years ago in this very hall, and I had to decide whether to take a job and go and work in Chad for the UN for three months or take a job with Monk Goldman Sachs in the city. <laughs> and having seen Sergio Vieira de Mello and Staffan de Mistura, I decided to take this 3 months thing and go to Chad. And finally, after leaving the LSC, I joined the United Nations. I was lucky enough, and I went in. My first job was in Beirut, and the elevator store opened, and it was Staffan de Mistura being the envoy of the Secretary of in Lebanon. <laughs> So I said, you're the man I have to blame for for giving up (laughs) a certain comfortable lifestyle in London, but the man I have to thank you for for all the wonderful experience that in the meantime in pursuit of the kind of inspiration that you gave me that day as a student here at the LSE that I was able to do and comes back to the issue of leadership. What Staffan did with the Civil Society Support Room wasn't just to receive the inputs and the views of what now is a group of a thousand. We started with 17 two years ago. 1,000 men, women, youth, former university professors, former civil servants, former ministers, former legal advisor to Assad, former advisor to armed groups, people who are refugees, leaders from the communities of refugees and IDPs that we connect through WebEx, through the internet, through VTC, that we bring to Geneva. We have a team that goes to Gaziantep, Beirut, Amman, Istanbul, Erbil, to just sit with them, hear them out, and connect the discussions that are taking place in track one, in the formal talks, when we had Syria talks in Geneva, with the discussion and consultations we would have with them. But what we also realized after a certain period of time, is that because Syria had become so complex, that it had become so incredibly dehumanized Everybody was talking about the different layers of the conflict. We have Daesh, we have terrorism, we have Sunni Shia, we have Iran and Saudi Arabia, we have the proxy war, we have the regional war, and we have you know, opposition, we have the urban versus the rural, we have the economic ex- you know, exploitation, we have corruption, all of these things. And you would sit in the Security Council and hear countries making very strong statements, countries that you know, would be like 10,000 miles away from Syria. It's making strong statements about the future of Syria. Nobody was actually hearing, other than through us until then, the voices of, you know, people like Dr. Rim Turkmani, sitting next to me here, who was a member of the Women Advisory Board, and many others. So what we said with Staffan was, you know, that's almost quite pathetic, really. And they shouldn't just be hearing their voices through us. And this was a time when the government, the opposition, would refuse to sit in the same room with us. We would do proximity talks. We would do shuttle diplomacy. We would have to do the most ludicrous thing when people are dying under barrel bombs. We would have to get Middle Eastern airline planes landing in Geneva Airport and docking in a different place than with Turkish Airlines that was carrying the opposition so that they wouldn't cross each other while people were dying. It was just unbelievable for us to see that. Yet we had civil society, people... Very strong opinion. Being 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 you know being civil society doesn't mean that you don't have strong political opinions. That you don't have a view of history. That you don't have a view of the future and a vision of Syria with all the differences that that entails. We had women who had their sons being killed because of their origins, uh, being Alawite and coming from military family, and young lawyers who were now outside. Who had been tortured for six years, day and afternoon, at ten a.m. and four p.m. regularly to a point where the torture wouldn't know why they were torturing them, sitting in the same room, under the civil society support room, and talking about the future, with a lot of intensity, with a lot of passion, but agreeing and discussing on the future. And so suddenly the Mr. said why is it that we're sitting in the, with the you know, 20 members of the international community and we, they cannot hear them? They have to hear through us. So we started to introduce these advocacy sessions whereby every time we had civil society in consultations, we would invite the 24 member states, ambassadors, special envoys, special representatives of the US, of Russia, their military, all of them. and people who had been supposedly having very strong, and they had very strong political opinion, opinion, would sit in front of this representative of the international community and deliver their own message. And their message was sending a very clear signal. The government and the opposition may not be able to sit in the same room, but we as Syrians, we want one thing, we want a solution to this conflict. We have very painful differences. We're talking to each other, and these are our voices and our messages, uh, just through the special voice, our own. And that's something that leadership, allowed us to do. It was unique. It was a great honor. It's a bitter moment for me personally that the first time I come back into this room is the day where the man who took me along this path in my life has just announced he will not be the Special Envoy for Syria in a month, but it's been a fantastic ride, and so it's been a great honor to serve with him and people like Mark, and thank you for having this particular topic today. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much indeed.